and welcome to The Farm, a podcast dedicated to culture, parapolitics, and high weirdness in all its many forms. This is yours, Recluse, aka Steven Snyder, the longtime curator of the Visit Blog and author of a special relationship, Trump, Epstein, and the Secret History of the Anglo-American Establishment. If you like what you hear here today, be sure to check me out at visitview.blogspot.com. That's V-I-S-U-P-V-I-E-W, all one word, dot blogspot, also all one word, dot com. And procure a copy of that book, Amount of Works, at the Farm's official store, which is at eFarmPodcast. That is eFarmPodcast, all one word, dot store. And please consider signing up for the Farm's Patreon. At the lowest tier, you get two additional full-length shows per month. That's between three and four hours of bonus material with exclusive guests and content. And our all-access patrons have access to the farm's monthly Zoom party meeting, my State of the Union addresses, periodic write-ups, dispatches from all the adventures I have, insights into the research that's ongoing over here, and all kinds of other goodies. It's a lot of material, guys, so definitely give that a consideration here. Okay, folks, today's guest is making his maiden appearance on the farm. He is a historian, philosopher, antiquarian, jurist, lay theologian, writer, mystic, radio, TV personality, showman, best-selling author, CEO, and lawyer. He is the author of five books, The Royal Arch of Enoch, Cinema Symbolisms, Volume 1, 2, and 3, and A Pact with the Devil, the latter a work of fiction. Folks, I give you guys the great Robert W. Sullivan IV. How are you doing this evening, sir? I am uh, very well this evening. Thank you, Steve, for having me on the farm. It's my pleasure to be here. I'm very much looking forward to this uh, interview. Well, it's uh, great to have you on here, sir. All right, folks, we have got a great show in store for y'all. It's always fun times discussing movies with a fellow film buff, especially one open to unorthodox and occulted interpretations. We're going to be exploring such symbolism in the works of two of cinema's most storied filmmakers, Stanley Kubrick and David Lynch. So for longtime listeners and readers of mine, you guys know I am a huge fan of both. For me, Kubrick and Lynch are in a category of their own as far as directors are concerned. I've done a lot with the works of either over the years and will explore the films more in the future. But here, I'm interested to hear Robert's take on these two directors. He seems to have come to some of the same conclusions as myself in some instances while raising some interesting possibilities I had not considered in others. It's going to be quite an intriguing discussion for sure. So on that note... Let us start the show. Robert, so 
first off, what is it about the films of Stanley Kubrick and David Lynch that makes them resonate so much with an audience on so many different levels? Uh, let's start with Kubrick. Well, I think I think the one thing with Kubrick um, is is they're very methodical and they're very good. Um, his movies um, are incredibly well made. Uh, he was a master craftsman, and uh, you know one of the gauges for me with with film is. You know, I've been on other shows, and I'll mention it here. In my, in my opinion, um, one of the worst, you know, offenses that a film can can be is to be boring or dull. Um, and the films of of Kubrick are certainly not that. Um, they are they are very engaging. Um, they are very well made. Um, like I said, the guy was an expert, you know, craftsman when it came to you know making movies. So they hold up. They withstand the test of time. Um, they, they, you know, some are better than others. And of course, when it comes to cinema, uh, I mean, it is there's always a subjective element. Um, some people will just like it for whatever reason, and other people will not like it. Um, so we always have to keep that in mind. But no, I I think the works of uh, Kubrick hold up very well over the years, and uh, you know. Even now, what it's been well over 20 years after his death, um, you know, here we are still talking about him. Absolutely. So how about David Lynch then? Yeah, uh, the, the Lynch Lynch to me um, is, is very similar to the answer I would give with Kubrick. Um, but Lynch's movies are deliberately confusing. Um, not all the time, but many of the times. Um, and he does that on purpose. It's like, you know, he opens one door or he closes one door and you think you have the answer. But then when he does that, he raises five new issues. So he he deliberately, you know, makes them impossible to fully interpret. Something like Lost Highway, for for example, is, um, I mean, I, I you, you can only go so far with it. Um, you know, you, you can only take it so far um, before you you know, you just say, you know, it's just, it's just, it, it, it doesn't make sense. And it's not supposed to make sense. Um, I like, I like Lynch. Uh, I think, I think he's a, you know, he's very engaging as well. He's very entertaining. The what the one thing I will say about Lynch that's always kind of stuck in my crawl a little bit with him is you watch some of his material, you look at some of his work um, and it's good. I'm not knocking it. Uh, you know, like I said, I've analyzed his, his, his films in, in, you know, three of my books, um, two more than, really the first one but uh i I have i have covered most of it most of his cinema and you know twin peaks on tv and uh the the one thing with some of his work that always kind of stood out to me was you know i i when i watch something like eraserhead uh, or twin peaks firewalk with me i always say to myself you know if if you took lynch's name off of this you know and you substitute it with someone like let's say ed wood um, and you put Ed Wood's name on it. Well, all of a sudden, it's this sublime, surrealistic, you know, masterpiece of Lynch. All of a sudden, becomes schlock if you put Ed Wood's name on it. Um, you know, and 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 you could certainly see where a movie like Eraserhead or Firehawk with me could could be made by someone like an Ed Wood. Um, they're very disjointed. They're very confusing. Especially Firewalk with me. It's a very very bizarre film. Uh, but, but, you know, when, when, when Lynch's name is put, put on the opening credits or the end credits, you know, it's, it's this very dark, surrealistic masterpiece that we're not meant to understand. But when it comes to Ed Wood, if we put his name on it, it would just be considered, you know, B-movie schlock. Uh, so I, I've, I've always been interested in that paradigm, but I, I do, um, very much like the cinema of Lynch. If, if for anything else, it's, he, he is one, um, filmmaker that I've always described with the same words. Uh, I've been on many shows talking about Lynch and the word I, the words I always use is decoding or interpreting or analyzing. That's the better word. Uh, his cinema, uh, it's heavy lifting. 
Um, there is a lot going on in his stuff, uh, you know, whether it be duality or Gnosticism. And uh, you always have to keep your eyes peeled for the occasional Wizard of Oz reference in there. That's always interesting. So, no, I, I very much enjoy watching uh, David Lynch's uh, work. Well, I think people tend to give more credence to uh, Lynch's movies because, I mean, he does uh, have that knowledge of symbolism and kind of the cult uh, imagery and so forth. Whereas, I, you know, I think people are more hesitant to uh, assign that kind of a uh, knowledge to a person like Ed Wood. Though, again, who knows exactly? Uh, what what would would what's 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 strange about Wood is he is one he made a movie. Uh, I believe it came out in 53, uh, Glenn or Glenda, which is one of the first appearances of the Gnostic Demiurge in a film, which is the Bela Lugosi character uh, plays a Valentinian de Demiurge. Now, I'm with you. I, you know, Wood's knowledge of the occult was probably limited to universal horror movies, Wolfman, Frankenstein, Dracula, things like that. Um, but, you know, he, 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 he does cast Lugosi as this, you know, demiurgic creator in Glenn or Glenda. And th this is a character you'll see in the, in the Lynch material. Uh, you know, you look at something like um, the one with Nicolas Cage. Um, Wild at Heart. Yeah, Wild at Heart with the, the mother uh, is, it, it, you know, fulfills that role. And of course, you go to Eraserhead with the man in the planet is the demiurgic manipulator. Um, so, you, you know, now I'm with you. I don't think I don't think Wood had the knowledge, you know, of the esoteric that Lynch had. But he, he, you know, he, he messes with it also. Yeah, he does have, I think, uh, a little more going on in his films than some people give him credit for. Sir yes. Uh, well, out of curiosity, what's your take on the influence that surrealism had in the uh, on the influence on uh, that surrealism had on the works of Kubrick and Lynch? Uh, I mean, obviously, a lot of people kind of focus on Lynch, but I find Kubrick to be an especially surrealistic filmmaker as well. Uh, what's your take? Yeah, well, it's it's it's, it's very easy to see in, in, in the works in the works of Lynch. Um, you know, you look at something like Lost Highway uh, or, you know, even uh, Blue Velvet. Um, these are very surrealistic Gnostic films. Um, Kubrick is a little more concrete. He's a little more grounded, um, but certainly you can, you can find, um, you know, you look at something like the shining, um, you know, where you're, you're, you're never fully aware of what's going on here. Um, you know, who, who is the Jack Torrance character? Is he, you know, he's obviously some sort of reincarnation, um, figure but you know you know who who is he exactly um that's sort of left open to speculation uh and yeah i mean you know he he, he is i i wouldn't categorize i wouldn't i don't think i'd necessarily categorize kubrick as a surrealistic filmmaker in the in the vein of lynch um but no he he definitely um kubrick definitely you know you know uses mystical aspects um, and, you know, esoteric themes in, in his cinema. And one of the things I always liked about, one of the things I, I do like, I shouldn't say liked about, I do like about um, Kubrick. And this to me is again, another, you know, hallmark of a, of a real expert filmmaker is he doesn't use the same thing in, in, in over and over again. You know, he uses, for example, he uses repetition in the shining, which is intentional, but then you go to something like eyes wide shut, he uses a different, scheme to convey esoteric meaning he doesn't use the repetition um so that's good i, I think that, i think that's always a good thing when you can um you know when you when you know when to turn it off and when to turn it on uh, Clark, uh 
Carpenter, John Carpenter does does similar things with this in the Halloween movies um, and some of his cinema. He kind of knows when to turn it off and when to use it and when to use things here and when to use things here, but not. But he also it's 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 when not to use them also. And I I, th I think that's what makes these filmmakers stand out. Yeah, I'm a big John Carpenter fan as well. Uh, I think that with Kubrick, as far as surrealism, though, I did pick up on a bit of a recurring pattern in quite a few of his movies in that sense. And it's it's actually one of the things that I really love about how he does these films, because typically his movies open in a very grounded, in, in the case of maybe something like The Killing or Dr. Strangelove, almost a documentary-like fashion you know i mean they almost uh seem what is it uh, like that what is that old newsreel the time of the war the news marches on or something like that the one that they make fun of in citizen kane um the news of the world but yeah it has that you know that almost sort of documentary feel to it but as the movies go along they just get weirder and weirder but it's kind of a gradual thing so dr strange love i mean it starts uh, where it is this very you know, darkly serious take on uh, nuclear war to, you know, some of the final scenes where you have um, the Slim Pickens character, you know, riding the the nuke Bronco style down onto the Soviet Union, just this right. wonderfully just surrealistic imagery that keeps popping up. And he's, uh, I think, done that with several of his movies as well. So I do admire that approach that he has. It's, I think, kind of a an interesting sort of fake that he uh, will give to audiences. It sort of puts them in what seems to be like a mundane world. And then he uh, kind of gradually pulls the carpet out from underneath you. Yeah. The one thing, the one thing that, you know, along those lines that, you know, is, is the staple really. Um, I was on another show recently, just talking about this. That's really the staple of Kubrick is the toilet. Um you know, he, he is obsessed with toilets and bathrooms. Um, they appear in all his movies and often a lot of the times, uh, you know, some of the most important scenes occur uh, in, in the toilet or the bathroom. I, I, I'm convinced um, that that he picked this up very early on from uh, Alfred Hitchcock, uh, especially it's Psycho, because uh, Psycho was the first film to show a flushing toilet. Um, and, and Kubrick uh, re really, you know, kind of took it and ran with it almost. Uh, you know, you, you look at, a lot, all, you know, all his movies. I mean, there's there's always a, a bathroom scene in it. And, uh, you know, oftentimes more than one, uh, you know, think The Shining or something like that. And uh, again, a lot of critical, you know, critical scenes occur there. Uh, I always I always thought in The Shining, one of the things that Kubrick was doing and this was sort of sort of hearkening back to Psycho was uh, if, if if you watch if you watch the uh, Shining's opening credits, uh, it's 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 the 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 credits the the color is periwinkle blue, uh, and if you remember back to the Shining or excuse me Psycho, um, that was the burial dress of uh, Mrs. Bates was uh, periwinkle blue, so I always thought that you know that was sort of uh, you know Kubrick's a little nod in a week wink to. Uh, Hitchcock, which again was the was the first you know film to Psycho to show a flushing toilet, and again the the, the toilet in the bathroom really pervade all of Kubrick cinema. So, you know th that's that's something else. You know when, when you're watching a Kubrick movie, you know always kind of keep that in the back of your head because uh, inevitably that will come onto the screen.
Yeah, no, I could see that. I was just, when you were mentioning that, I was like reflecting on several of the films and that does come up a lot, but it makes a, a lot of sense though, because I mean, being in the, uh, the bathroom, it's, it's a vulnerable state, you know, for pretty much. Oh, absolutely. Time. Yeah. Oh, I, I agree. It's, 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 it's very gritty. Uh, it's, it's, it's very vulnerable. Um, you know, people, you know, people in, you know, use the bathroom They're at you know, it's, you know, a very pri private, you know, thing. And, you know, he kind of just flaunts it out there. Um, and again, this is, you know, when you watch his films, this is where, you know, a lot of these critical scenes uh, take place. Uh, you know, in The Shining, you've got, you know, Shelley Duvall getting, you know, hiding there. And then, of course, you got the scene in the in the one bathroom where he's talking to the spirit of, you know, Grady. Um, and of course, you know, my goodness, we could go on and on. Clockwork Orange is where, where, where he's singing in the bathtub. And of course, this is where the guy, picks up that he's the rapist from earlier on uh and then you have um I mean, well, there's actually the earlier scene too in the clockwork orange where his was his probation officer confronts him when he's in the bathtub that's right that's right and then you have a full metal jock jacket where he you know he commits suicide in the bathroom at the end of the paris island scene uh and then there's uh oh and strange love the guy kills himself in the bathroom um and then of course try the most infamous one of all um is Spartacus, where you have the uh, scene that was cut out, the, the snails and oyster yeah, the, scene. Yeah, the yeah, with, uh, seduction, yeah. Yeah, with, with Lawrence Olivier and Tony Curtis. Um, I've, I've always been convinced, if you watch Lolita, um, which I believe is the movie that he made after Spartacus. Yeah, that's cool. Um, yeah, yeah, Quilty jokes about that. When when, when James Mason, Mason Humbert shows up, I think Quilty, who's Peter Sellers, says something to him like, aren't you Spartacus here to free the slaves? Yeah. Right, and he kind of mocks his own movie. And I, 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 people have made a big deal of this, um, and I, I, I've always seen it a different way. If you go back and watch uh, The Shining, when, when Jack Torrance arrives at the Overlook, um, this is after he gets the job and he's, he's sitting out in the waiting area with all the suitcase and, and uh, what's his name comes up, uh, Allman. Scatman and, Brothers. Or, oh, no, no, you're right, you're right. It's the, yeah, and, he, and he's reading the Playgirl magazine. Man, man, there's, there's a lot of people who think that this is some sort of covert reference to pedophilia in Hollywood or something like that. And it might very well be, but I've always viewed that scene as sort of, again, him sort of taking a shot at Spartacus, you know, the homoerotic scene that was cut out, that, that it was a movie that he disowned. I, I think it's a good movie, but you know, it, it really irked Kubrick that they took that scene out. And I, I always felt that that scene in the shining uh, with, with the playgirl magazine was sort of like, you know, meant to be a throwback to that. It was kind of a, you know, sort of citation to that. So um, no, but you know, th this is the kind of things that uh, Kubrick does and you, you watch his films uh, you know, you, you really start to pick up on it. And again, when you pick up on it, you really do come to understand what an expert, uh, you know, master filmmaker this guy was. So what was it like for you the first time you discovered Kubrick and or Lynch? Uh, you want to start with Kubrick? Yeah, sure. Uh, the, the first time uh, I, I actually discovered Kubrick um, was, I was, I was I was a boy and uh, I was on vacation uh, with my mother and father. This was been 1980, the summer. So I was probably nine or eight. Let's see, you know, I would have been, uh, Good grief. Yeah, I would have been eight years old in the summer of uh, um, 1980, which is, I think, when The Shining came out. And I actually went to see The Shining with them in the theater. Um, and it scared the hell out of me. Um, I mean, it, you know, it was one of those movies that just terrified me. I probably saw it too young. Um, but that was really my introduction to Kubrick was watching The Shining, um, you know, just horrified me. Um, of course, now I can watch it. And, uh, you know, I pick up on a lot, lot of the stuff that's going on in there. That's probably 
out of all out of all Kubrick's movies, I would absolutely say The Shining probably is the one that has the most imagery in it that I can think of, at least for the time being. So that was my my introduction to um, to, to Kubrick. My introduction to Lynch probably probably came in the early '90s with something like uh, Twin Peaks. I believe I was a freshman in college when that aired, and I remember watching a little bit of it, but kind of not being overly impressed with it. Um, I like it now more than I did back then. Um, and uh, I, I think, God, let me go back. I mean, pro- probably at some point in time, you know, the, the the main introduction to Lynch was probably somewhere in the 90s watching Blue Velvet or Lost Highway, uh, one of those two movies, which I liked very much. But again, you know, they are very hard to decode. I mean, you, there's things in them that are going on that you can you can pick up on. But at the end of the day, if you just watch it as a linear story, I mean, it's, you know, very disjointed and, you know, as we mentioned, surreal. <clears throat> so um, those would have been my, my, my introductions to, to both of them. Um, as of right now, I probably have watched most, if not all of Kubrick's films, there might be one or two that I've seen, but maybe not in a, quite a while. I believe I've watched all of Lynch's work. Um, again, some of it's a little dated. I haven't watched some of it of late. The only one of, of Lynch um, that I don't think I've seen is the one that came out in the early 2000s. Uh, Straight Story or Inland uh, Empire. What was it? What was the one you just said? Inland Empire. Yes, Inland Empire. That's the only one I haven't seen. <laughs> oh man! Um, see, Lost Highway actually makes perfect sense to me, but I, I, I'm, st- I've watched Inland Empire like four or five times, and I still don't really know what exactly is going on in there. Um, yeah, Inland Empire. I mean, makes Eraserhead look like the straight story, frankly. Right, right. No, I've never seen it. Um, I've never seen it. But you know, when when you get into Lynch. Um, there's the, 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 the real, you know, hallmarks, you know, things that are, that are always appearing in his films, um, is duality. Um, I mean, he met, he loves doubles. Um, I mean, there, there, you know, I mean, just, I mean, you, you just go through a laundry list of, of doubles, uh, you know, w- 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 that appear in, in his cinema. Um, and again, there's always a little, uh, nod and a wink to the wizard of Oz in there, um, which I find very interesting. And uh, the other thing is um, with Lynch. Oh, he he likes uh, he's into theosophy with Madame Blavatsky and Gnosticism. Um, these again are you know esoteric you know theologies, heresies that really pervade a lot of his work. Uh, you know, and again they they turn up in pretty much everything. Again, I haven't seen Inland Empire, but you know you get into Blue Velvet and. You know, Mulholland Drive or Lost Highway, um, yeah, uh, th- those themes are always present in, in Lynch's work. I knew you'd alluded to a bit before, but how about Alfred Hitchcock? He seems to have really exerted quite a considerable influence on both directors, which, I mean, isn't entirely surprising. He was really one of the first instances of the director as an artist, if you will, um, but uh, do you have anything else to add about uh, his influence on Kubrick and then potentially also on Lynch, where I think? Oh, I, I agree with you 100 percent. I mean, Hitchcock is, again, one of the experts. Um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm always asked about, you know, on, on, on podcasts, you know, you know, what directors do you think are really like the experts on this? And, you know, of course, Kubrick Lynch, you know, you could throw Hitchcock up there if you want to get into more modern today. 
certainly, you know, Aronofsky and, uh, you know, Ari Aster, ones that come to mind. I mean, even you want to get into more pop culture, you know, Lucas, you know, Spielberg, certainly Robert Zemeckis. But um, no, Alfred Hitchcock, absolutely. And again, he 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 plays around with, uh, again, uh, these very Manichaean themes of light and dark. Um, one of the things that he uh, loves to do in his films is the wardrobe and the costuming. And, and again, this is, again, things that will be picked up on years later by other filmmakers. And I, I should mention, you know, to you and the listeners that when it comes to, you know, using or employing, utilizing whatever word you want to choose, arcane, esoteric themes, symbols, emblems, what, again, whatever, um, this is a very uh, uh, large palette that these guys paint from. I mean, it's not just this, that, and the other. I mean, we're talking wardrobe, music, uh, the actual actor or actress that is cast uh, could have uh, significance. Um, so again, this is a, it's a very broad spectrum of uh, things these directors and filmmakers, producers, writers use uh, to get across these occult themes, but no Hitch Hitchcock Hitchcock is another one of these guys. And um, what I was going to say was one of the things that he really likes to play around with is the costuming. And what I mean by that is if, if you watch a lot of his films and again, you know, I'll go to psycho, um, you know, you look at like Marion Crane, who starts out, you know, innocent. So she wears the white lingerie. But then, of course, after she steals the money, you know, she's the villain. So she wears the black lingerie. Um, and, and you will find this uh, this often in his films with, with the costuming. And again, you, you, you can you can move forward again with this to, to modern cinema. One, one of the movies that always jumped out in my head when it came, you know, it really jumps off the screen when it comes to costuming. Um, was the um, uh, movie from the 80s, Fatal Attraction, uh, which was um, uh, what was Adrian Lyne. Uh, his films have a lot, lot, lot of, uh, you know, alchemical, esoteric themes in them. But uh, the one thing with Fatal Attraction, the, the Glenn Close character, um, she is sort of the schizoid split personality uh, character. She's, you know, good girl, bad girl, or a combination of both. When you watch the movie, um, keep an eye on her wardrobe because it always fluctuates between white, black, or black and white. Um, and that's, again, you know, to convey this Manichaean theme of good, evil, or good and evil. Um, so, again, costuming is something, uh, you know, always keep your eyes peeled for. And Hitchcock, Hitchcock uses this, does this very effectively. Um, and you'll find it in another one of his films. I think North by Northwest does it as well. Um, but I know in Psycho, that's really one of the ones that really stands out with, uh, you know, Marion Crane's uh, lingerie. So next time you're watching Psycho, take a look at that. No, I always found it uh, fascinating that Lynch uh, actually seems to have uh, really extensively played homage to a lot of Hitchcock's movies in his own films, probably more so than any other uh, filmmaker I can think of. I mean, of course, there are the, um, the obvious Vertigo references. Lynch clearly is a, a huge fan of Vertigo. Um, but another one that I don't think many people pick up on is Marnie. Um there's a scene in Marnie that Lynch almost exactly recreates in uh, Lost Highway with the Robert Blake character. It's that uh, really quite striking scene when Blake encounters uh, the Bill Pullman character at the party and uh, goes up to him and says, we've met before, haven't we? And there's um, actually, I mean, an almost identical scene in Marnie with that as well. Um, 
you know, slight spoiler here for those of you who haven't seen Marnie, but the, um, I think it's Grace Kelly who was the lead in that. Sean Connery is the male lead. I can't remember if it was Grace Kelly or not who starred in it as the female lead, but uh, whoever is the female lead is essentially suffering from a multiple personality uh, disorder. Needs <laughs> a lot of other interesting interpretations to it. Uh, but anyway, and another one of her personalities, she had uh, encountered the figure who was throwing a house party at this uh, quite extravagant mansion, and uh, he witnesses her. As she walks in with her new uh, view, played by Sean Connery, and uh, does the same line to her, makes a beeline for her, goes up and says, we've met before, haven't we? And uh, as in the case of the Bill Pullman character, she is equally perplexed by this statement. So, um, yeah, I uh, I think possibly of all the directors, Hitchcock is the one who's had the clearest influence on Lynch's work uh, to the point that obviously it's not quite Brian De Palma level, but I mean, Lynch has even gone so far to the point of really trying to consciously imitate, I think, some of the scenes even from Hitchcock's movies, which I find interesting. Oh, yeah, absolutely. The one the one that he does is and what what's, you know, what what to pick up on what you're saying is he does this in um in the twin peaks the return um it's one of the very early episodes where he re he he duplicates the shining um the scene in the hotel room with the little boy walking to room 237 um there there's a scene in there it's been a while since i've looked at it but he he repeats that scene almost identically um and 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 it, and it ties into uh, he he make he's making fun of the conspiracy, or maybe he's acknowledging it of the whole moon landing thing uh, with Kubrick, because um, the woman who in, in in the in the Twin Peaks episode has a little dog with her named Apollo, um, and and I, I believe that's uh, a reference to you know Apollo Eleven. Of course, that was Danny Sweatshirt. So um, yeah, I mean I mean these guys are always homaging other filmmakers that you know. Um, that they they like and uh again with lynch you know you definitely have the decided influence on of uh hitchcock um but again you know keep an eye out for wizard of oz stuff uh victor fleming um inevitably there will always be some sort of little wizard of oz uh reference that turns up um in in, in his films uh i always find that that you know particular particular peculiar let's leave it at that uh, Wizard of Oz is definitely a book with a very curious history, to put it mildly. Yes, <laughs> put it uh, mildly is one way of is is a very uh, under it's an understatement to say the least. So I did my own esoteric take on 2001 a little over a year ago, and I'm curious to hear your read on it. I was quite struck by a lot of the Saturn symbolism, which uh, which granted is a little bit more explicit in the novel, uh, where the mission's final destination is in fact Saturn rather than Jupiter. But ultimately, I tend to view... Um, is you're kind of getting into the closing part before we get into the whole, you know, psychedelic extravaganza as a kind of theurgic ritual opening up the gate of Saturn with Jupiter as a stand-in, which uh, the consciousness, if you will, the astronaut uh, Bowman, I think it was, it goes through. So what's your take on all that? You know, it's a movie that I've never really broken down and analyzed. Um, I, I've, I've kind of always wanted to leave that one alone. Um it's too surrealistic and too that that one's not my cup of tea. So I've never really taken on 2001. 
Um, so I, it's been years since I've watched it. So I'd have to look at it before I could give you any sort of answer for it. Well, fair enough. Well, let's talk some Shining then. So what's your take on the use of uh, doubling and Kubrick's use of doubling and repetition in this film? Well, this is this is, you know, to me, Kubrick's granddaddy of them all because he he repeats things. He, he just ad nauseum. Everything appears in doubles and he repeats things. And it's you've asked yourself the question, why does he do this? Um, and it, it's really to convey to your subconscious mind um, that the that the uh, hotel is essentially an Ouroboros. It's a, a serpent biting its tail that everything in it is just destined to keep repeating over and over again. It's just a recycling uh, event. Um, and, and when you sit down and watch The Shining, it is just astounding the levels of repetition um, that, that Kubrick goes through, whether it be repeating numbers um, or, 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 or repeating um, doubles. Um, this just, it's not, people say lines back to each other. They repeat lines back. Um, so if like, for example, one of the numbers, um, that, that he, 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 he likes to, uh, get into is number 42. Um, this is an interesting number. You'll find it on Danny's, um, sweatshirt, sweater, you know, or, or, or little t-shirt at the beginning. Uh, you'll find it with, um, on Scatman Crothers, uh, license plate. Um, and if you take two, three, seven and multiply it, you get 42. Um, it's, 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 if you want to look at the book, um, from a religious aspect, you know, from like a biblical, uh, that number relates to the years of, uh, the antichrist reign in revelation. Um, so you can look at it, that's sort of investing Jack with sort of this very dark demonism, uh, which of course, you know, he does it by, by the end of the film, he basically is a demon. Um, but 42 is also, uh, Aleister Crowley's grand cursing number. Um, so that's uh, it's an interesting number to, uh, to, to to go after there in The Shining. Um, but, you know, some of the other things, I, I made a list here. Um, so, like, for example, um, I mean, what's, what's he say here? The number 12 uh, is a number that's repeated. And again, you can look at this from the Bible. I mean, the number 12 is all over the place. 12 apostles. 12 is all over the book of Revelation. I mean, what does Scatman Crothers say? There's 12 tur turkeys, 24 pork roasts. That's 12 times 2. Uh, 12 pound bags of sugar. Um, 12 jugs of black molasses. Um, Jack throws the ball against the wall 12 times. They make 12 turns in the uh, hotel maze. Uh, there are actually two mazes, the overlook and the uh, one outside. Um, you know, again, this ties into doubles. There's two sets of twins, the little girls, and then the twins that passed Almond when they go to the uh, hotel room. Um, there, there's a mention of two Portlands, one in Maine, one in Oregon. Jack has two tens and two twenties in his wallet. Um, so again, this is just examples of repetition um, and repeating that Kubrick uses. Uh, and again, the idea of this is to sort of blast your subconscious mind um, to convince it that the Overlook is this, you know, alchemical Ouroboros forever biting its tail, forever recycling and repeating. And to, and to me, that, that, that that's really, um, you know, the hallmark, again, of a, of a real a expert craftsman. Um, then you get into the whole um, thing. I don't know if you want to get into it or not with the moon landing. Um, that's very interesting as well. Um, because there is a smoking gun with this that actually goes back to Kubrick's movie before The Shining, which is Barry Lyndon. Um, and then there's actually a piece of casting uh, 
um, in The Shining that hints, is that hints at this as well. Um, I don't know if you want me to get into that or not. I can. Um, yeah, go for it. Go for it. Yeah, yeah. Well, in in um, um, what one of the one of the big theories out there is that the government, NASA, CIA, FBI, was was a fan of Kubrick's films, particularly Strange Love, two thousand one, um, and and they wanted him to shoot the lunar footage. Um, and the idea was that they actually could go to the moon, but they couldn't film there. So to prove that they went to the moon, they actually retained the services of Stanley Kubrick to film this footage of them hopping around um, in a soundstage. Uh, you know, and this was the moon landing. Um, and when you first hear this, this sounds kind of far fetched, but there actually is some smoking gun evidence with this. And this was apparently, you know. If you're familiar with this, this is the scene. Kubrick tells you this in The Shining with the scene with the little boy, Danny, um, when he's wearing the Apollo 11 sweater. He stands up and then he walks to room 237. Um, and and in the novel, it's a different room number. I believe it's 213 in the in, in the book. Um, and the theory was that Kubrick changed. I think it's 217, actually. Okay, or 217. It's something like that. Um it's not it's not two, three, seven. And the theory was that in the late 1970s, the distance from the Earth to the moon was two hundred thirty seven thousand miles. So this is why I changed it. And this is him symbolically showing you that, hey, I filmed the moon landing with this footage of this little boy, you know, with the Apollo 11 sweater. Um, if you go back to um, Kubrick's movie before The Shining, Barry Lyndon. Uh, Kubrick wanted, it's about the Napoleon, it takes place during the Napoleonic Wars. He wanted to film scenes exclusively by candlelight, but you can't, they don't throw enough light off. If you ever go back to the 40s or 50s and you watch a, a movie where it's supposed to be set by candlelight, there's always an off-camera off light. And of course, you can watch this. I mean, if they blow the candle out, they kill the light off the screen. They make them look like they went out at the same time. But you can't film just by candlelight. It doesn't, it doesn't work. Well, believe it or not, NASA had actually developed in the mid-70s a, a lens that allows you to do this. Um, and this is a true story. Kubrick actually went to NASA and requested the lenses for Barry Lyndon, and they and they gave him to him. Um, and of course, this begs the obvious question: Well, why why would NASA assist Kubrick in making, you know, this Napoleonic era movie? Uh, and and the question answers itself was, you know, done, done as out of a favor for Kubrick filming the the, the moon landing footage. Um, NASA gave him these lenses. Uh, Kubrick tweaked them a little bit. Um, and was able to film these scenes in, in Barry Lyndon strictly by candlelight. Um, the other thing that ties into this that's uh, very interesting, and I, I discovered this very, very recently within the last couple of months. One of the things that I, I, I talk about in, in, in my books is this idea. Um, I call it occult casting. It's probably a term that I'm moving away from. It's more now what I would describe as an art of memory technique where a filmmaker will Put an actor in a movie to sort of bring with that actor or actress their cinematic baggage from another film and sort of invest it into this new this new production it's not typecasting um it's not casting bella lugosi to play the boogeyman over and over again um it, it's it's very subtle and it's very, if you get people who know what they're doing it's it, it's very effective and, and it's very well done um and one one of the things that is is going on in, in the shining with this is uh, if 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 you're familiar with uh, uh, the James Bond stories and the movies uh, based on the novels by Fleming, uh, in 1971, uh, the the Bond movie that came out in 71 is the last. 
Bond movie with Sean Connery. It's the last canical uh, Bond movie with 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 Connery. It was Diamonds Are Forever, um, and there's a scene in that where Bond winds up in this government, you know, base out in the Nevada desert, and he breaks into it, and he winds up on the soundstage where they're faking the moon landing. Uh, the, the 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 base is obviously meant to be Area 51, and Bond you know, kind of jumps around and moves around and they're filming the, the moon landing. They got the guys jumping around and make a long story short, Connery Bond gets out, escapes by jumping in the lunar vehicle and, and breaks out and drives off into the Nevada desert. Um, and I always, I always kind of wondered to myself, um, you know, does Kubrick reference that movie diamonds are forever because this, this shows, you know, the moon landing being faked. Um, so it begs the question, does does Kubrick do anything in The Shining to reference um, James Bond in any way? And the answer is, uh, yes, he does. And he does it very, very subtly and secretly. And that is he actually casts the first actor to ever play James Bond in The Shining. And that is none other than Barry Nelson. Uh, who plays Stuart Ullman uh, years, about five years before uh, the first James Bond, Sean Connery movie, which is Dr. No came out, which I believe is 61 um, in the mid fifties, Barry Nelson actually played James Bond in a made for TV movie uh, based on Fleming's uh, first Bond novel, Casino Royale um, on a TV show called Climax. Um, and they put together this little 55 minute version of Casino Royale where uh barry nelson plays james bond and i always thought that that you know that by casting nelson as the guy who runs uh the overlook i can't help but think that that's not some sort of james bond reference by kubrick hearkening back to diamonds are forever um and again being an indicator of kubrick kind of kind of with a wink and a nod uh showing the audience that uh you know hey i'm the guy who in fact uh you know, film this, you know, dummy, you know, moon landing footage uh, for NASA. And I think when you take it all together with Danny, uh, with the, you know, smoking gun stuff with NASA, with Barry Nelson and with, you know, the bit with uh, Barry Nelson, uh, you know, referencing uh, James Bond and Diamonds Are Forever. You know, I think it's a strong argument as a lawyer uh, that you could put forth saying that, you know, yes, Kubrick, you know, probably was the guy who, you know, did film the moon landing footage um, at this point in time, that would not surprise me. And in my opinion is not really conspiratorial. Yeah, no, there's definitely some interesting aspects of that, which we'll probably get into here in a little bit. Um, kind of looking at possibly some of Kubrick's uh, connections within power circles. Uh, but to get back to room 237 here for a moment, you see it as uh, partially a homage on Kubrick's part, uh, or partially a homage in Suspiria as well. Uh, I think that was Argento, right? Uh, as a homage to Kubrick and then also uh, paying tribute in uh, Poltergeist. So can you unpack that for us? Yeah, the the one in, um, there's a reference in Suspiria that I, it's, I'm drawing a blank one, but in Poltergeist, um, the the one where, um, it's, 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 you'll find references to, to the shining in, 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 in later films. In fact, right now, this is one of the big trends in Hollywood is if you're, if you're making a haunted house movie, you will inevitably find some reference to the shining in there. And of course, that's ultimately what poltergeist was from the early eighties. There, there is something in there from Suspiria, but I'm drawing a complete blank on that right now. But the one in the pol in poltergeist is when the little girl, 
uh, Heather O'Rourke um, goes up to the TV set. And this is probably one of the most famous scenes in, 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 the, in the movie where she says they're here. Um, keep an eye on the TV set. Uh, the time is 2.37 a.m. Uh, 237, which is, of course, uh, referencing, um, you know, The Shining. Uh, if, if you want to fast forward to, you know, more modern, you know, recently, um, The Conjuring films, especially the second one, um, this is one where um, it's in part two. There's a couple of them. There's it's in scary stories to tell in the dark as well. But in the in the Conjuring Part Two, this is one where they introduced the demon Valak, uh, who who plays the nun, um, which you know costumes itself as the nun, um, who plays the demon. And interesting. And what's interesting about that is the the actress um, I forget her name who plays Valak the demon uh, played the demon um, in Mulholland Drive who hid behind Winkies. It's the same actress. Um, so, you know, I thought, I thought that was, that was interesting. Uh, the, the, the same woman plays the demon Valak played the demon monster hiding behind Winkies in Mulholland drive. But at any rate, um, if, if you watch the scene where Valak is in the woman's house and goes to the end of the hallway and stands there, that is a recreation of the scene in the shining with the two little girls, um, at the end of the hallway. In fact, um, if you look at it very closely, the it's the same wallpaper on the walls from both The Conjuring 2 and The Shining. And then also in The Shining, I, I guess the, the filmmaker James Wan was just like, you know, screw it. Instead of just paying homage to Kubrick, let's just put him in the damn movie. Um, if you've seen Conjuring 2, it opens at the Amityville Horror, the 112 Ocean Avenue address, and they're doing the seance. And they have a Kubrick lookalike at the seance table. Um, and, it's, and it's Kubrick as he looked on the set of The Shining. Um, so it's it's basically, you know... Let's not even, you know, instead of just making some little, you know, occult reference to Kubrick here, you know, here or there, screw it. Let's just put put him in the movie. Um, so, yeah, recently, if you're making a haunted house movie, um, you're going to have some sort of shining reference in there uh, in some form or fashion. Out of curiosity, do you have a take on um, Jack Nicholson and analyze? Is it analyze this or analyze that? I can't remember which one, but I always thought that uh, he had consciously tried to make himself look like Kubrick in that film. Uh, do you have any thoughts on that? I, I, you know, it's it's been a while since I've watched it, but um, I, I don't want to get into it because I haven't watched it in so long. But what you just said about looking like Kubrick, um, that does kind of ring a bell for me. So. Uh, yeah, I mean, it, it, it's it's certainly it's certainly possible. I, I'd have to go watch it, but um, that that would not at all surprise me um, at all. And, and that, that's another thing that uh, uh, Kubrick does in The Shining is if you watch it with the main actors, it's again, it's doubles. I mean, he hires, you know, Jack Nicholson to play Jack Torrance. Danny Lloyd plays Danny Torrance. Um, Shelley Duvall's name has two L's in the forename and the last name. Um, this is the kind of stuff that, you know, he messes around with. Um, and it's really pedantic. Um, I mean, it gets annoying after a while. I mean, I, it, it, when you watch The Shining, I mean, I, you know, when he's driving to the Overlook at the very beginning of it, I mean, he passes two cars. He passes four cars, two are stationary and two are moving. I mean, this is the kind of little stuff, you know, again, repeating doubles, two and two. Um, I mean, that, you know, it, he when you, when you start watching it, it becomes ad nauseum. Um, you know, how pedantic he became by doing this. But, you know, that that was the way that was the way Kubrick, you know, worked. That was the way he operated. I mean, he'd film, you know, the same scene, you know, a thousand times looking for that one right thing in it. Um, and, you know, it, and it is interesting to me because he, he does see he, you know, and I don't know if this was conscious or not. 
by Kubrick, but I, I always go to Full Metal Jacket, um, you know, and again with sort of repetition and going back to the beginning, as it were. Um, if you if you remember, and I don't know if this was intentional or not, if this was just subconscious on Kubrick's part, but when you watch Full Metal Jacket, um, again the movie is split in half really by 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 two. You know, it's 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 bookended by two really. It's two movies in one. I mean, you have the Paris Island Island sequence, and then you have the scene, sequence in Vietnam. And if you remember this, when at the at the end of the Paris Island sequence, um, this is when uh, Gomer pauses with the blow his brains out. Hartman comes in, Arlie Ermy, um, and says something. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna curse on your show, but he says, "What what in the blankety blank is this Mickey Mickey Mouse blankety blank going on in here?" Um, and that's, that ends the Paris Island sequence. But then if you fast forward to the end of the, uh, Vietnam sequence, um, they're all singing the Mickey Mouse theme. So again, it ties into the, it goes back to the ending of the Paris Island. It's, it's repetition. Um, and I don't know if Kubrick did that on purpose or not, or if that was something subconscious he did. Um, you know, it's like a holdover from the shining with all the repetition. Um, interesting, but you know, again, uh, that's Kubrick for you. Yeah, no, I always uh, thought the Mickey Mouse references at the end of those two sections was also intriguing. I don't know, too, if it's possibly a bit of a critique of American capitalism in some sense as well, or Hollywood maybe specifically, and how it um, depicts war movies, because it's uh, he really kind of flew in the face, well, I mean, uh, of many uh, war films, but especially a lot of the Vietnam-era ones, because, I mean, first you have the kind of opening section uh in boot camp which i i think is significant on a couple of levels i mean hey you uh up to this point you know there had never really been an attempt to do uh, a depiction of it quite this accurately before I agreed yeah and B, it's you know it's not really often thought of as such but i mean the u.s army the u.s marine corps i mean these are the uh, boot camps that they have developed are some of the most effective uh, means of brainwashing and indoctrination that have ever been developed, probably, in human history. Sure. But they're, they're not often seen as such, but if you sort of look in the context of things Kubrick gets at and, you know, the uh, Dr. Strange love in 2001 and A Clockwork Orange, I think that that's in line with why he opted to emphasize this particular aspect in Full Metal Jacket. And then as to the Vietnam section itself, it's really intriguing because it's a depiction of urban combat in a Vietnam movie, which flies in the face of what, you know, we almost always think of combat as in Vietnam, which is out in the jungle. and Jungle, what right. Yeah, he almost does it as more of like a World War II type of combat situation. It's very interesting. Yeah, I, I, I agree with you 100%. And it, it is when you watch Full Metal Jacket, I mean, that opening sequence, you know, I mean, it ropes you in. I mean, you cannot turn that movie off when you start watching it with that with the uh, um, boot camp stuff. I mean, and, and like you said, I, I can't think of another movie that focuses focuses on that. And I think that's what makes it so good is you, you're watching it and, and you're seeing something that there's. I can't think of another movie really that delves into it like, like he did. And uh, I mean, I, I you know, it, it's really, um, you know, when you, when you start watching full metal jacket, you know, it's a hard movie to turn off and walk away from. Um, I mean, it, it really, I mean, that really ropes you in that, that opening sequence. I mean, even when he's, 
you know, I mean, just the very, the very, very beginning of it, where he's walking around and and making fun of those guys and 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 cursing them out and you know doing this that. I mean, you can't turn that off. I mean, that's some of the best cinema. I mean, the camera never leaves him. I mean, it's like one consecutive shot almost, um, and it's it's amazing. It's it's amazing filmmaking. You you literally can't take your eyes off that opening sequence where he's walking around in that circle, introducing himself and starts dumping on you know the cadets. Um, I mean, it's it's an impossible scene to turn away from. And the other thing, too, that's kind of interesting about the second half of the movie, which I don't know has been picked up on a lot, but I mean, it it, it almost foreshadows uh, what would become, you know, the more common uh, trajectory, I guess you would say, of battles that the U.S. military was engaged in and kind of going into the 90s and into the 21st century especially, because again, now we saw this return of a lot of urban combat, uh, but against, you know, these insurgent forces, which is something that Kubrick depicts, I think, quite uh, well in Full Metal Jacket. I mean, especially sort of the ending sequence with the sniper. And, uh, you know, this is obviously inspired a bit by World War II, but these were sort of scenarios that, again, will become really prevalent, um, you know, as the military sort of advanced more and more into the far-flung corners of the empire and the developing world. And uh, they were confronted with these, you know, kind of like the whole Black Hawk Down scenario. So I think that's kind of another interesting aspect of that as well. Yeah, no, I, I agree. Um, very, very, uh, you know, it's, it's his films are very, very well done. And, you know, you can, you know, look at them as there, there's, there's, one of the things, I mean, there's just so much going on in his films. Um, it's, it's one of the reasons why I love, I love talking about Kubrick, but um, yeah, no, I, I, I totally agree with you. I mean, it's, it's, it's an interesting full metal jacket is one that always is overlooked. Um, I don't know why, um, but you know, I think that's one of his best films. Oh, it absolutely is. Uh, okay. So Kubrick was initially involved in one of the first major films on artificial intelligence, the aptly named AI. Steven Spielberg famously completed this project after Kubrick's death. Reportedly, Kubrick had been working on this film for years, uh, possibly even prior to uh, the work that he started on Eyes Wide Shut. So I was intrigued uh, by your views on AI, which you've connected with the Kabbalah and Hermeticism. This is very much in line with my own views. Do you think that Kubrick held a similar view, hence the years that he invested in developing a movie on the uh, subject of artificial intelligence? Uh, I don't don't know what Kubrick's... um personal take on artificial intelligence is, but this is a theme um, that goes way back. I mean, and this predates Hollywood a long, long time. Um, in, in the end, I mean, you know, we, we, you know, people, I guess, think about AI, they think of the robot um, right now. But again, you know, th- this is coming out of the world of Hermeticism and Kabbalah with things like the golem, um, the Hermetic statue, um, the, these are, are creatures um, that you will find uh, pervading Hollywood, and, and, and they predate Hollywood. Um, I mean, Mary Shelley's, I mean, you know, if, you know, the Golem, the Hermetic statue, they run parallel. Um, you know, I get, you know, Frankenstein is probably arguably one of the most famous ones of, of all. Um, I mean, you could, you, you could, you know, any, you know, again, it, it's, it's more than just the robot. Um, 
you know, it, it, it's the humanoid creature that is created through magic in, in the invocation of names, numbers, um, astrology, you know, natural magic, um, you know, and, and you find this thing, you know, it, they're, they're, I mean, it's, it's, it's some of the most popular characters ever created. I mean, like I said, it's Frankenstein's monster. Um, I mean, Smurfette on the Smurfs, you know, was a lump of clay. Um, created by Gargamel's black magic uh, to go in and destroy the Smurf village. Um, that's artificial intelligence. Um, Frosty the snowman, uh, you know, a humanoid brought to life by a magic hat. Um, these are just a few examples of um, artificial intelligence. And again, you can find this going back. I mean, even in, in the very early days of filmmaking with things like Metropolis, um, which which is you know overloaded with all sorts of uh, gnostic themes themes in that one, um, but you know you'll you'll find this in literature um, you know predating uh, ho Hollywood. So yeah, I mean I mean the the artificial um, intelligence, the Kabbalistic golem, you know the Hermetic statue. Um, yeah, I mean I mean th 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 this is a Hollywood favorite topic. Um, that, you know, these things turn up all the time. I mean, you know, if you want to get more modern with them, certainly Roy Batty, um, probably one of the most famous ones of all in Blade Runner, um, you know, who, who is, who is, you know, what, what, what makes him so interesting is he's more philosophical than his human creators, um, which I've always, you know, that, that's the one thing with, you know, with, with Blade Runner is, 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 is the Nexus sixes are more philosophical and more, you know, esoteric than their human you know, makers. Um, so, you know, I mean, what, what Blatty misquotes William Blake at one point in time. So <clears throat> yeah, I mean, the, 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 the artificial intelligence aspect is something that um, is very, very fascinating to me. I love, I love talking about it, but again, this predates Hollywood. Um, and this, this, this is something that goes back to Jewish magic. Um, you can even call it to an extent, you know, you know, Christian sorcery to an extent coming out of the world of world of hermeticism. Um, certainly alchemy ties into this, uh, you know, with, you know, the, you know, with, with transmutation, things like that. So, yeah, I mean, th this is a, a very, a very prevalent uh, mystical thread in Hollywood. There is no doubt about that.
So Lost Highway is my favorite David Lynch film. I was intrigued by your perception perception of it as an instance of Sethian Gnosticism. So can you unpack that for us? Yeah, it's it's it it really is. It's 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 the idea of um it's what's called you'll 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 find it um in in a lot of the um occult teachings of Jesus. Um it's it's it, it works its way into um uh, the Renaissance, it's what's called negative theology. Um, and it's sort of, it, it's, it's a, sort of a dense subject, but it's the idea of, um, that you can't know God personally. So if, if you actually understand that and you become sort of the antithesis of God, you actually become God in a way it's, it's what's known as negative theology. It's big, but it's, 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 it's the idea of by not being God, you actually become God-like. Um, and again, that's why it's negative. It's a negative, it's a negative theology. And this is what is actually happens in Lost Highway where the Bill Pullman character who is sort of, you know, you know, the, 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 the you know, the, the jerk, the narcissist um, in it, who actually through being, you know, this very, you know, cruel, mean-spirited person who actually at one, at some point murders his wife, the Patricia Arquette character, um, actually turns into the good guy who is uh, the, the Peter character played by Balthazar Getty. So by become, by being the jerk and the murderer, he actually becomes the good uh, godlike character. Um, that's really the, you know, that's really the negative uh, theology uh, one of the best examples of it um, placed on film. So, you know, when you're watching Lost Highway, keep an eye on that. And one of the other things, um, and again, this is uh, ties into uh, the Lost Highway, you know, again, you have lots of going on, on with that with doubles, um, you know, with the Patricia Arquette character, especially. Um, the, um, the one thing, again, um, very well buried there, um, but again, you know, it's 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 one of his little references to the Wizard of Oz is the casting of uh, the final role of uh, Richard Pryor um, as the auto mechanic. Um, of course, Richard Pryor uh, was the Wizard of Oz himself, uh, who played uh, the Wiz in uh, 1978's black exploitation pastiche of the Wizard of Oz. So uh, Lynch actually places the Wizard of Oz himself. Uh, in Lost Highway. Um, that's his little homage to uh, The Wizard of Oz in that film. But no, I love Lost Highway. I think it's a very good film. And uh, I analyzed that in depth. I believe that's in Cinema Symbolism 2, but I can't recall off the top of my head right now. Yeah, I believe that's in CS2. Um, so yeah, no, that's a very good movie and one that, uh, yeah, I mean, that's, you know, any again, anytime you're talking Lynch, uh, he's heavy lifting. And, and Lost Highway is, uh, you know, is very difficult to unpack all right well the black dahlia murder was a major influence on lost highway and to a lesser extent uh Mulholland drive so what's your take on the influence that this particular incident had on those films well that's it it's 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 absolutely right it's the murder of the female uh sophia character um and of course this you'll find you know paralleled with the real um black dahlia murder and that that's that's a whole nother topic is um the influence or um you know it, it works both ways it's it's you could have um the real life incident influence the cinema but then you can have it work in reverse where the cinema 
the art prophesizes the real life event. Um, and you'll find that all over the place. That's a fascinating um, uh, su subject matter. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, you know, cl clearly, clearly with the Naomi Watts character um, in, in, in Mulholland Drive and then with Patricia Arquette in, um, in uh, Lost Highway, you can clearly see a parallel with the Black Dahlia murder, um, you know, going on with that. And uh, that that's really it's it's the the influence of real life events in the movies. That's one thing. But then when the movie comes before the real life event and predicts the thing, um, that's that's a very very fascinating subject. Um, that's really going to be the subject matter almost um, of of my next book, Cinema Symbolism Four. Um, some of the stuff going on uh, in media regarding 9-11, the assassination of John F. Kennedy. Um, some of it is just so mind blowing um, that I, it, it's hard to comprehend, even as a lawyer, um, to, 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 to realize what was going on. It's just amazing to me. Yeah, I mean, I, I take it you're getting in the sense that uh, Lost Highway kind of seems to be centered around ritual murder. I mean, maybe to a lesser extent, Mulholland Drive as well. And then, of course, uh, in the aftermath of filming it, you have the, uh, you know, the notorious incident involving uh, Robert Blake, of course. Um, also, too, there was the death of uh, Jennifer Simi, I believe is how her last name was pronounced, Um who uh, was the uh, partner of Keanu Reeves, and she was also David Lynch's personal assistant. Uh, she died under some very peculiar uh, circumstances in 2001 after uh, leaving a party from Marilyn Manson's house, who also appears in Lost Highway, um, as does uh, Jennifer Simon. She uh, appeared as the junkie girl in Lost Highway. So um, Marilyn Manson actually was sued for wrongful death and her um, tragic death. So, yeah, that was another kind of uh, uh, unfortunate fallout from this film, seemingly, which is why I've often felt that Lynch really uh, tapped into some sinister energy with it. Oh, sure. Um, you know, you can you can find movies um, that really have um a dark energy um in them that i mean i've i've always felt like you know like like you know the devil was in the celluloid um it, itself um the three that come to mind um that, that i mean I, i've always viewed as sort of like you know satanic you know cinema where i always felt that the devil was in the celluloid I mean, the one is the exorcist of course that's a no-brainer but then i always thought the black cat with uh um, Bela Lugosi and Boris Karloff. That's when where Bor Boris Karloff plays the Aleister Crowley analog. Um, I mean, that's a very, very dark movie, especially for when it came out. I mean, it's a movie that deals with necrophilia, black magic, um, Satanism. Um, I mean, this is a movie that came out, what, like in 34 or something. So that's, um, you know, you know, very, uh, very, very bleak movie for that, for that time frame. Um, and then uh, recently, um, I I I've always felt that, uh, Movies, uh, the Ari Aster movies, Hereditary, and especially Midsommar. I mean, those are very dark movies. Um, you almost have uh, demonic, you know, invocation in those. If if, if you watch them um, back to back, if you start with Hereditary, I haven't I haven't seen his recent one, though the one Bo, Bo is Afraid. I haven't seen that one yet. But um, if you watch Hereditary, um, 
there is so many references in the uh, to the exorcist in that movie i mean it's a movie about demonic possession um the demon um that that movie focuses on is a demon uh known as payman uh which is a real demon you'll find him in ars goetia the lesser key of solomon and if, if you fast forward to midsommar um and you watch that film and you pay attention to it um, one of the things that manifests very subtly um, in that movie is the number nine. Um, it, it turns up all over the place in Midsommar. Um, and it's twofold. It's, it's one is the number nine is critical. It's a critical number uh, in Norse mythology, um, very much like how number 12 is in the book of Revelation. Number nine is all over Norse mythology. So you can see why it's in there. Um, but uh if, if you if you are familiar with Payman and the Lesser Key of Solomon, um, Payman is actually the ninth demon identified in uh, the Lesser Key. And I've always felt that that movie Midsommar was so bleak, so dark. And with this number nine reference, I almost felt as though Aster was so somehow trying to, invo you know, you know, it was an invocation of Payman in that movie. Uh, sort of transferring it all, almost over this demonic presence uh, that you'll find in Hereditary, um, tr transferring it over into Midsommar. Um, you know, it's, it's a very it's a very dark movie. I've been on with shows uh, with hosts who won't even watch them. Um, but I, I, I'm very impressed with with Aster. I think his movies are very good. But no, they're 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 very bleak, uh, very dark indeed. Yeah, no, I was uh, definitely very impressed with Hereditary as well. Um, I still have not seen Midsommar yet. Um, not because I was afraid to watch it or anything, but I just kind of had some personal reasons. Yeah, for... well, well I'll, I'll say this. I'll, I'll say this to you real quick. I won't, I'm not going to give it away. Um, you're going to see uh, references to The Wicker Man, um, and then you're going to see references to The Shining. Um, and this is, again, is done intentionally by Aster because he's trying to convey um, the isolation of these college students in this in this cult uh, that they're in, 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 uh, in, in, I believe it's Norway or maybe Sweden, maybe Sweden, I think it was, was where it is. Um, and when, well, I'll just, I'm not, this won't spoil the movie or anything, but um, when they're arriving, um, Aster Aster films the movie uh, straight down upon them, and it's it's intentionally done. It's meant to look like the scene at the, the opening of The Shining, where Kubrick is follow following Jack's BMW or uh, Volkswagen Beetle. Um, it, it's filmed exactly like that. Yeah, that um, almost and, like God's and, eye view. Yeah, the God's eye view looking down. It's filmed exactly like that, and then later, about halfway through the movie, uh, the main protagonist in it, uh, who's uh, Danny Danny Adwer, who's played by Florence Pugh. Uh, she's sleeping in this bunkhouse. Uh, keep an eye on her blanket. It's the uh, carpet. The, the the pattern on the blanket is the carpet from The Shining in the Overlook Hotel. Keep an eye hmm. out for that. Interesting. Oh, yeah, I know you've already gotten a bit into occult casting. Um, I find it especially fascinating in Lost Highway. Uh, could you unpack some of your interpretations of it in occult casting in Lost Highway? Uh, I'd have to go back and look at it, but I don't recall there being, if, if there was, I can't recall what it is right now. I think you uh, mentioned partly with Bill Pullman, if I'm not mistaken. Oh, yes. Yeah. No, that was, um, yes, that is in Lost Highway. Yeah. The, the one thing that was, I found unique in that was, um, the one thing, and I, this, this was definitely intentional by Lynch. No, now that you say that, that, that jogged my memory. Um, the one thing that Lynch has always talked about that he hated 
uh, was the summer blockbuster movie. Um, how much he loathes uh, the summer blockbuster, you know, the popcorn movie. And um, if you remember Lost Highway, I believe that movie came out in the early days of 1997, maybe maybe January, or February of 97. And if you remember, you know, the two two of the main characters in that movie who were the villains, who were the real scumbags in it was Bill Pullman, of course. And then also in it, and he turns up more in the Baltazar Getty part, uh, is uh, Robert Loggia. Um, and I couldn't help but believe that this was uh, Lynch sort of uh, giving the middle finger uh, to the summer of 1996, the summer uh, that it, that had just happened, um, because the big blockbuster, um, which Lynch, Lynch states, you know, that he hates uh, of that summer of 1996 was Independence Day. Um, and who are the two, you know, you know, you know, baby faces in Independence Day who saved the world from the aliens? I mean, it was Robert Loggia and it was Bill Pullman. Um, so I think that by Lynch turning around and, ca and casting them as the two, you know, scumbags um, in in Lost Highway, you know, six, seven months later when the movie was released, I thought that was Lynch's way of giving uh, Independence Day the middle finger um, and uh, basically saying screw you to the uh, summer blockbuster of 1996. Um, and that's sort of the thing that Lynch would do. Um, and again, that's just a way of using these two actors to kind of transfer, to convey a message that you wouldn't usually think of. That's that's more prevalent than you may think. Um, the, the use of an actor or an actress uh, to convey some sort of uh, hidden meaning. I, I, when, I, when I first started examining this, I thought it was a rare occurrence. Um, but after, after doing it now, after, after keeping an eye open for it, um, and being cognizant of it, you know, the last five or six years, uh, it's it's much more um, widespread than I had initially had initially thought. Yeah, I was intrigued because uh, I, I've always kind of uh, interpreted the Fred Madison character um, who Bill Pullman plays in Lost Highway as being partially a kind of stand in for Lynch himself. I mean, of course, Pullman actually looks a bit like Lynch. Um, he's got, you know, kind of a similar uh, interest in jazz, uh, especially the sort of avant-garde variety. In fact, I think Lynch had maybe helped compose some of the compositions that uh, Madison plays in the film. But also um, the residence uh, that Bill Pullman and the Patricia Arquette, the Burnett version of her, inhabit in Lost Highway is actually Lynch's very own house uh, to boot. So I thought that was kind of a fascinating Yeah, thing. that is. That's real interesting. Uh, and then, well, for me, the two instances of kind of a cult casting in that that really jumped out was uh, Beltazar Getty and um, uh, the girlfriend, actually, that his character is dating, uh, Natasha Gregson Wagner. Uh, and that's from the families that they're from. Of course, uh, Beltazar Getty is a member of the, uh, the infamous Getty family of oil money. Of course, they had also um, sponsored uh, some rather arcane artists over the years, one of them being Kenneth Agner. Uh, and then Natasha Wagner, Gregson Wagner, um, is actually the daughter of Natalie Wood, uh, the famous actress from Rebel sure. Without a Cause, uh, who died under other mysterious circumstances in 1983. Uh, so I thought, uh, kind of getting into the my take on it as being a bit of a rumination on ritual murder, I found it very interesting that he casted members of the Getty uh, or a member of the Getty family in it and then also uh, Natalie Wood's daughter and another one of the roles in it. 
Yeah, that's that's interesting. I'll, I'll, I I wasn't aware of that. Yeah, no, there's definitely, I think, a lot of very curious uh, casting across. The, well, pretty much all of Lynch's movies, frankly, but especially that one. And then, oh, yeah, Andy. The, oh, that's another one that's just chilling, honestly, in a lot of ways. He's played by the actor uh, Michael Massey, I believe his name is, who... Um, his breakout role was really in Crow, and he was the unfortunate soul who fired uh, the weapon that killed Brandon Lee. Right. So, um, you know, there's a lot of very interesting casting in this film, to put it mildly. Yeah. Um, all right. How about uh, the Gnostic and Occult themes in uh, Mulholland Drive? Yeah, this is this is again um, a movie that is 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 very dualistic, um, and if if you if you watch it, everything that is happening um, in the at the beginning part of it, the dream sequence turns up later in the real life sequence, um, and again, this is uh, uh, you know it's it's that's probably one of my favorite movies of Lynch is, is Mulholland Drive. But it's, um, you know, it's, it's a great film. And, uh, you know, I, I've always, uh, I've always just, when, when it's one of those movies that kind of challenges you to keep an eye out, you have to kind of watch this one, uh, the first part, and then the second part, because inevitably something will turn up, um, you know, and, and that that's what makes Lynch so hard to do is he makes references to things. I mean, he does this in Twin Peaks all the time. He references things like five episodes later that you have to go back and then watch you know, the earlier episode to pick up on what he was talking about. Um, and it's the same thing with Mulholland Drive. It's, uh, you know, you, you really got to watch the first half and then keep all that registered in your head because he generally, it, it turns up in some form or fashion uh, in, 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 in the, in the later, in the later half of it um, in the set, in the second portion, um, you know, so um, it's, a, it's, it's a, it's a great film. I, I, I loved uh I, I love that film, um, and uh, yeah, one of my favorites. And again, uh, we we have the uh, Wizard of Oz reference with Winkies, of course, the fast food restaurant. Uh, the Winkies, if you're not aware, those are the guardsmen, the Wicked Witch's guardsmen, or the Winkies. Uh, so that was the uh, Wizard of Oz reference in there. All right, as we get into the home stretch, I thought we may briefly delve into the ongoing debate over predictive programming in films. I noted that you're open to more Jungian interpretations, which I tend to find more compelling as well. But in the case of a filmmaker like Kubrick with his ties to Kirk Douglas, it's kind of suggestive. Uh, Douglas was, of course, one of the most politically active uh, filmmakers of his era and the circle of Hollywood people around him as well, including people like Burt Lancaster and director John Frankenheimer, made some very suggestive films in the 1960s. Of course, I'm referring to uh, The Manchurian Candidate, Second, Seven Days in May. Uh, if Dr. Strangelove is any indication, it seems Kubrick was potentially read in as well. So where do you stand on this? Do you think that uh, possibly Lancaster or uh, Douglas had maybe gotten him access to some insider information? Uh, it's, it's, it's hard to say. Um, I, I look at it as, um, how can I explain? The evidence that I'm at right now with this is this is all supernatural. This is this is evident. I, I've I've seen too much of it, and I can't imagine that there's a human hand behind this. Um, 
it's too it's too eerie and it's too supernatural um with 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 some of the things going on um where a movie or cinema sort of prophesizes a real life incident um i i i can't i can't work it any other way than than at this point to say i mean it's definitely happening um i i don't dispute that um you know, because because the evidence is overwhelming. I mean, you you know, I, I get into a lot of the nine eleven stuff and and some of the stuff with the Kennedy assassination with this one TV show called Route sixty six is mind blowing. Um, but you know, it I just can't bring myself to believe that there's a human. I I, I mean, I, I'm been over. I've, I'll be fifty two in October of this year, and I, I don't think human beings are capable of this. I mean, I, I just I just don't think that a human being or a group of human beings can plot things out like this. Um, you know, I mean, unless, unless they have act, unless they have a time machine or something and can, can see the future or do something like that. I mean, I just, I, I you know, I mean, I, it's just too, too, it's too astounding. I mean, I, I, I can't say it any other way. I mean, I, I it's, it, I just don't think a human being is capable or a group of humans of, of plotting out this kind of detail where the, these events, whether it be nine 11 or the Kennedy assassination are just shown, you know, where there's this overwhelming evidence uh, leading up to the main event, um, you know, and, and, and then, then it happens, um, you know, that, that, that's, I mean, I, I can document it. I can, I can talk to you about it, but I mean, I, I can give you explanations relating to people like young, and maybe this is coming out of the collective unconscious and you're tying it into people who before young, like Emmanuel Schwettenborg, the Christian mystic who kind of talked about this also, he young, young called this, uh, he, he, he called it synchronicity. And he, he taught, tied it into something called the collective unconscious. Schwettenborg, two, three hundred years earlier, said the same thing. Only he called it correspondences, these super supernatural, um, you know, you know, it, it's 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 where it, it's supernatural things that are interlaced, um, where they're linked together, um, but there's no real rational explanation for it. Is the only way I can describe it. So I. I, I and at this point, I've always looked at it. Well, maybe this is Jungian. Maybe this is Schwettenborgian. Maybe it's a synthesis of of a human being's hand on it, um, and that could be. But at this point, I, you know, with with some of the stuff that I'm looking at right now, um, I think it's more probably supernatural than anything else. Where do you fall like on the concept of something like hyperstition or kind of the Rosicrucian uh, use of art for magical purposes? Well, um, my my like I said, my my theory on this has evolved in the last six months. Up until about six months ago, I was on the line of, um, you know, maybe this is a synthesis of humans, you know, it, you know. Uh, you know, the, 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 the story, you know, the explanation I often gave was, you know, and this comes out of the works of like the Hermetica and things like that, the creativity, and this ultimately ties back into the works of Plato, the creativity is a divine act. Um, and that, you know, you know, and the collective unconscious is inherited and that by creating a movie, which is highly, you know, not to sound repetitive, but is a highly creative endeavor, 
you're sort of tapping into these archetypal images that are shared in the subconscious mind and that this is manifesting in film and that this is, you know, because of that, maybe the collective unconscious and these synchronicities are predictive. I, I That's possible. But of late, I've seen too many things that lead me to believe that this is supernatural, um, that this is some sort of influence, whether di- diabolical or divine, I, that that's open to interpretation, uh, that is manipulating these things. Um, that's, that's kind of where I'm at with this right now. I, I don't, I don't, I haven't thrown out what I've said before. I mean, I certainly stick to it in my new book that I'm writing. I, I give, I try to give as much, um, explanation as I can to this, but I think, I think for me, you reach a point where at least it's a point that I'm at now and I've crossed where I just kind of look at this and say, you know, come on, you know, I mean, th- th- this is, this is not humanly possible. I mean, it just isn't. Um, when it comes to looking at some of this stuff, I mean, and, and, and the numbers involved and what Crowley talked about, um, you know, we, we can sit here all night and talk about, you know, art being creative and this, that, and the other, um, this, this goes beyond that. Um, I mean, this, this, this is into another realm now, in my opinion, that this is clearly, um, manifesting, uh, from a supernatural dimension of some kind. Um, that's right now, as of uh, J- July 20th, 2023, that's where I'm at right now. No, I think that's very well put, and that's very much my own sense. I do think that, you know, effectively going through an act of uh, art, you're engaging in an act of creation, uh, the use of the imagination, which is in and of itself a kind of magical working and I think does innately put people in contact with the muses or whatever you want to call it. But I do think that it does ultimately uh, contribute to a certain amount of supernatural manifestations through art and certainly with the way that it interacts with um, really the collective consciousness of the public as it spreads and so forth. I mean, almost like a mind virus. But yeah, I do think well, like, you know, I'll just give you a brief example of, of this. One of the things that I've been researching, um, you know, and this is again, I don't think this I mean, I'm just going to be a brief example. I, I've, I've talked about this on other shows. I am absolutely 100 percent convinced that starting in the in, in the late 19 in the 1990s going into 2000s and especially with these events like 9-11 and stuff, that these are harbingers of this new astrological age. Uh, the age of Aquarius. If you're familiar with um, uh, Aleister Crowley, the ceremonial magician, he prophesized this um, and he called it the, he didn't call it the Aquarian age. He called it the age of Horus. Uh, This is synonymous. Um, They're interchangeable. The age of Horus and the age of Aquarius are the same thing. And one of the things that Crowley said was, this isn't me making any of this up. I mean, you can go read this. And I mean, I could point, give you the citations if you want to, you know, pull up the book of the law, you know, uh, book four, magic and theory and practice, uh, 777, whatever. He said, the mantra of this new age is this, this slogan called do what thou wilt shall be the whole of the law. Um, I don't know if you are aware of this, but in Greek gematria, uh, that, um that expression has any value 
of 93, um, of, of, of the number 93, um, that you'll find all, all over the place in Crowley's writing. Um, believe it or not, I mean, this is the kind of thing where I'm talking about being supernatural. And, you know, you know, I, I've always said that this 9-11 event, and this is just one example, was this was this event that was signaling the age of Pisces and bringing in this new age. And on 9-11, the number 93 manifests not once, not twice, not three times, not five times, but six times. Okay, you can find the number 93 buried in 9-11 six times. Okay, that, that that's not humanly possible. A human being can't do that. Um, and that has to be some sort of supernatural influence uh, manifesting in this world. I feel like uh, almost like Aleister Crowley and AWAS, you know, are pulling the strings uh, from another dimension um, on us. Um, and, you know, that's, you know, that's where my research is heading right now. And you'll find this. I mean, the, the way I tie it in is you'll find this in media. I mean, you'll find this, you know, you know, all over the place, um, you know, in, in media, TV shows, comic books leading up to 9-11. Um, but, you know, when you start looking at, at you know, at, at some of these these numeric things that are turning up on that date, it's mind blowing. And like I said, I just sit there and, as a lawyer. I sit there and look at this and I just say to myself, there's no way. I mean, there is no way possible a human being can concoct to have that number manifest six times on that day. I mean, it's one of many. I mean, this that's just one of many. Um of one of you know these these occult crowling numbers that turn up that day um and you just sit back as i do and i, I examine it and you just reach a point where you're like you know that this is this is some sort of you know demonic uh you know thing going on ending this one age you know bringing about this new one so that's where that's where my research is is of right now It's yeah, certainly a uh, compelling take on it and one that's very much in line with my own interpretations of events like 9-11 and the Kennedy assassination, which is just another one where it's, you know, the amount of synchronicities and so forth that appear in it are just mind boggling. It's beyond the. Uh... Absolutely. Absolutely. And they're linked. Um, you'll, you'll find you'll find Crowley's numbers all over the Kennedy assassination. You'll find you'll you'll find them all over the place if you start looking for them. Um, and especially in this lead up time to the turn of the millennium. Um, and it's, it's, it's just um, amazing. It's, 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 it's an amazing, uh, yeah, I mean, I mean, let me give you an example. I mean, just so you don't think I'm, I'm making this up, I'll just go back to the, the number 93 um, on, on, on 9-11. Um, just so your listeners know, I mean, I, I said it was mentioned six, I brought it was, I said it was, it manifests six times. Uh, you had, I mean, you have the obvious one. Uh, flight 93, which crashed in Shanksville. Uh, you have Flight 11, which hit the North Tower between floors 93 and I believe uh, 88. Um, the Flight 175 hit the South Tower at 903, 93. If you add up, um, if you add up the the flight numbers of the two buildings that struck uh, the Twin Towers. Flight 11 and Flight 175, you get the number 186. That's 93 plus 93. And on 9 11, um, 3,000 people died from 93 different countries. You can't make that up. I mean, and that can't be man made or generated. Um, so, 
you know, when, when, when I, as a lawyer, start examining this and looking at this and looking at it objectively, you reach a conclusion that this has to be some sort of supernatural uh, event, a horizon of some kind. Have you ever noticed, like, sort of the connections with, uh, the, you know, the kind of inverted uh, 93, i.e. 39? Uh, interestingly enough, that's actually a number that turns up a lot. Well, first in the uh, the Jack the Ripper killings and then later in the Black Dahlia murder. Um, supposedly, it's significant in three masonry because it's uh, uh, 13 times three, three thirteens, in other words. Uh, but also to uh, kind of getting into the notion of it linked with ritual murder and that kind of thing. You also have uh, the Alfred Hitchcock film, The 39 Steps, which hints at kind of the programmed killer aspect of things and so forth. Uh, did you ever uh, consider any of the things like that? In the connection? Oh, sure. I mean, I haven't looked at the number 39, but I've looked at other numbers, um, you know, and what, uh, what you're saying wouldn't surprise me, but, you know, um, uh, you know, and, and you 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 can you can get into that um, where it may be like an inversion or like, you know, you know, gematria where you where you can um, uh, break it down into other numbers. Um, so, like, for example, um, um, you know, one of one of the numbers, if, if you if you keep an eye out, uh, you know, for some of this stuff, um, you know, again, we can go we can go to 9-11. Um, is the number seven or seventy-seven? Um, you know, and, and and again, if 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 you if you read Crowley, seventy-seven is the goat of Mendez. Um, that's Baphomet's number. Um, and if you read his work, he tells you he said that Baphomet is the god of the new Aquarian age. He calls it horse full grown. Is is one of the terms he uses. Um, and it, you know, again, this this thing was invoked. This the seventy seven um, is is invoked all over the place on on nine eleven. I mean, I'll just give you one example. On it is is you had flight seventy seven um, hit the Pentagon, which is seven floors, um, is seventy seven feet tall, sits on the seventy seventh meridian, and was guarded by flight seven 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 on nine eleven. I mean, so, I mean, there's another one of these, you know, crazy numbers that manifests. Um, so, you know, I, 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 I'm sure that there are, you know, what you're saying about the number 39, I've never looked at that one, but there are other numbers out there that, you know, play into this. Um, but, you know, you know, so what you're saying about the number 39 in no way surprises me whatsoever. All right, so this has been a fascinating uh, conversation, and certainly I have to have you back here uh, one of these days soon. I'd love to go uh, a John Carpenter deep dive with you as well. That's uh, another one of my favorite filmmakers. Oh, sure. Yeah, no, Carpenter's fantastic. I, 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 I love his films, and yeah. and he has he has in a you know, and, and you got uh, in Escape from New York. You have one of the uh, predictors uh, with. Uh, with uh, 9-11 where they crash Air Force One into um, into uh, lower Manhattan. Um, and of course, uh, you have you have, you know, there, there was a very little clever reference in there um, with with the president being sort of the savior of Western civilization. Um, if you remember, if you remember uh, the flight, the flight was David 14 was Air Force One. And of course, that's a reference to King David. And in Gematria, the name David is 14. Uh, so, so that was a, that was a, a, a little nice little trick there with uh, Carpenter. 
Um, but no, I'm, I'm a huge, I'm a huge fan of his work. Um, you know, and, uh, yeah, sure. I'd love talking to you about him. Yeah, no, you definitely can't uh, beat Carpenter for some of the uh, low budget filmmaking with, uh, some very, very deep, uh, meaning to it. So again, from a guy like maybe David Lynch or I suppose also David Cronenberg, Cronenberg has got some really gnarly stuff in quite a few of his films as well. Uh, but anyway, there's definitely no shortage of possibilities out there. <laughs> no. Well, all right, sir. It has been a wonderful conversation. And uh, as always, I want to thank you guys so much for listening and all your support. And on that note, we will sign off for now. So with that, good night and good luck to you all. <laughs>
sorry, hippies. If Great White Father don't make payroll, forget about your maple. It's just that one 